Hello and welcome to The Five By, your bi-weekly blast of board game broadsides. In this episode, Catherine is stacking up humans in Castell, Ruel is adventuring adorably in My Little Scythe, Lindsay is slaying the living dead in the Draeger, and I'm pushing wooden elephants around in Kerala. But first, here's Ruth capturing runaway spirits in Sigil. Hello, Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, settling in with a fresh cup of coffee to talk about one of the few solo game experiences I keep returning to. Now, I don't actually play a lot of solo tabletop games, but Sigil from designer Henri Kermarek is something of an exception. Published in 2015 by Capsicum Games, this small card game offers one to four players a meditative experience that's only enhanced by the phenomenal art by Maud Chalmel. Sigil reminds me of Mahjong with its intricately woven setup and the ways in which cards are uncovered and revealed during play. Players choose one of five layouts detailed in the rules and lay out the 56-card deck, some face up and some face down, until they've built the Sigil, or magical rune, from which they'll be releasing and capturing spirits. On a player's turn, they take a single card and add it to their hand. If a face-down card is uncovered, it's then flipped over and revealed. If a spirit is uncovered, it immediately escapes the sigil becoming available for capture. If a player is able to lay down a set of at least three cards matching a freed spirit's suit or number, then they can capture the spirit, placing it and the card used to capture it in front of them. Alternatively, the players can steal spirits from each other by playing larger sets matching the spirit they wish to take. The cards moved over to join the new owner, but the original set used to capture the spirit remains in front of the original player, and it can now be added to later to recover what was stolen. Play continues until someone has a certain number of spirits captured, winning instantly, or when all cards have been removed from the sigil, in which case whoever has the most captured spirits in front of them wins. Being forced to take just a single card each turn leads to some really nice tense moments as players weigh up taking the card they want most, with the risk of uncovering something even more valuable for the competition. I've watched players dance around a really nice looking card because of the fact it will uncover two face-down cards, each waiting for someone else to give in and chance revealing a spirit. I love that such a quick, fast game can still cause players to find themselves getting into each other's heads as they try to figure out what their opponent really wants, and which cards have been taken less out of desire and more as a safe choice as that opponent attempts to delay. While players can and will steal from each other in the multiplayer game, it's still a very welcome come down from a hectic day or an intense game session. But I honestly don't tend to play Sigil this way. I usually play the game solo, which gives you an even more contemplative and relaxing experience. In this solo game, there's just a couple of small changes. On each turn, you must take a card of your choice and discard it out of the game before you take one into your hand, and only three spirits can be free at a time. So if you happen to release a fourth uncaptured spirit, one of the already freed ones is also discarded. It works really well as a meditative puzzle as you try to figure out what cards can be trashed while avoiding uncovering too many spirits before you're able to safely capture the ones already free. Being so soothing and taking just 15 to 20 minutes makes Sigil a perfect game to accompany a cup of coffee in the morning or a glass of wine while relaxing after a long workday. Now, setting up the game does take almost as long as playing it, but the process is so soothing that, for me at least, it's a calming period letting me clear my mind for the game. Especially when I play solo, I find building the sigil very enjoyable. I can watch the formation come together and start figuring out which areas are going to be tricky to safely uncover. Once setup's complete, I usually take a few moments to simply admire the result. The art on the cards is stunningly beautiful, evocative and mysterious as befits the spirits. The cards depict various aspects of nature as divine, from clouds to rocks to stags and turtles. All are dreamily painted, and the rest of the cards evoke their partnered spirit remarkably well. 
I will admit, however, it did take me an embarrassingly long time to notice that the corner icons and numbers on the spirit cards are darkly colored versus the white that's used on the cards of the rest of the deck. This did make it hard for me to identify which card was a spirit at first, but it was never so frustrating as to have me want to abandon the game. I simply played with the roll sheet next to me because it has the image of each spirit on it. For me, Sigil is the perfect solo game to wind down and relax after work. It's beautiful, it's quick, and it plays smoothly while retaining enough challenge to keep me interested in another play. It almost makes me think of childhood afternoons playing hand after hand of solitaire while on vacation. Given that the game is a small deck of cards in a small box, that at least a couple of setup options have small footprints, and that the multiplayer game is just as enjoyable as the solo but in a different way, Sigil's a very versatile game for carrying with you for unexpected gaming moments. Over the last year or so, the game has been a little trickier to find, but it can be ordered from France through Philibert, who I highly recommend anyway if you're looking for fast, secure games from Europe. And if you do manage to find a copy locally, I highly recommend jumping on it, as Sigil is one game that I intend to play until the cards wear through. And until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Castell, by first-time board game designer Aaron Vanderbeek, explores the world of Catalonia, where for over 150 years, troops of Castellers traveled the countryside, competing to see who could build the tallest tower of people. Mr. Vanderbeek has designed a number of video games for different portable platforms and the web, and that experience can clearly be seen in the excellent design choices that he made in Castell. He has three more board game projects in the works, titled Holy Moly, Vega Cafe, and Chopin, and I am crazy excited to play all three. Published by Renegade Games and lovingly illustrated by artist Osi Hikala of Flamme Rouge fame, Castell is the best game that I've played thus far in 2018. In Castell, you play as a troop of Castellers, friends who travel the countryside seeking out recruits to join your team while working together to learn new skills. You win the game by participating in local performances and large festivals, showing off your biggest and best tower building skills for in-game victory points. In each of 10 rounds, every player will get a turn. On your turn, you always do the same three to four things, but you can do them in any order you choose. The game board depicts seven regions in the same warm tones that evoke Catalan country. Your troop is depicted by a stunning ode to the theme of the game, a wood meeple that is actually a small group of climbers. Once per turn, you will move that meeple one space to an adjacent region. Why? Well, once per turn, you can recruit two new troop members to help you build your ideal tower. The people are depicted on cardboard tiles ranging from size 1 to 10. Nines and tens are big, burly individuals who can hold up lots of people, while ones and twos are children depicted in the safety helmets that they wear today in competition. Each region is populated with these tiles, but only every so often, so the race to recruit advantageous people is keen. Alongside that pressure is a cadre of teachers who travel the country training you in the specific skills you need to do more than make a pedestrian three-level pyramid. So each turn, you will train in a skill in the region that you are in. Finally, and this is the action with the most complexity, each round you can choose to use one of your precious special markers to either move a second time, recruit an extra Casteller, or put on a regional performance demonstrating a particular tower shape or a tower showcasing specific skills that you have learned. These opportunities are determined by a set of tiles allocated to each region 
at the start of the game. Surrounding all of this are two more puzzles, the first of which is the rules by which you can build your tower. You will spend the whole game tearing apart your tower and rebuilding it to meet new goals or showcasing new skills that you learn. This ends up being a fun personal puzzle with constant engagement and real motivation to learn skills wisely, as these skills are what allow you to make bigger, better towers that win competitions and fans everywhere. The second puzzle is that each round has a competition or two with particular requirements in a particular region. If you end your turn in that associated region and meet those requirements, then you are eligible for competition and the many victory points that come with it. In summary, each round the rules that dictate your turn are very simple, but those three to four simple actions turn into a host of tantalizingly difficult decisions. For example, my troop is in Tarasa. I really want to head east to Mataro. In Mataro, there are a number of talented, strong women looking to join a troop, and there is also a teacher willing to teach us how to build a solid level of our tower while mixing weight classes, which we have been desperate to learn all game. Perfect, right? Except, oh no, next turn there's a competition in the region of Vals that I'm perfectly suited for and I must head west now to make it in time. What do I do? Gamers with multiple gaming styles can enjoy these choices. It is a game that can be played tactically, moving from great opportunity to great opportunity, but Castell can also please the gamer who wants to plan, as all the performances and competitions and their requirements are laid out for all to see at the beginning of the game. Interaction isn't too aggressive, but is certainly still present, as the race to recruit limited numbers of Castellers and fulfill the demand for the local performance is ever-present. Castell plays snappy and fun at two players, and at four is full of interesting competition. The scaling is nice across player counts. I love the giant cloth bag that holds the person tiles, but could also hold a real cat or two. Embroidered bags like this one are a particular joy. Castell is a lovely game with a clever puzzle, a beautiful theme, and lovely painterly illustrations. Do not be distracted by its delicate, pretty artwork. This is a thinky game that will provide many pleasant hours of brain burn and keep even the heavier gamer entertained. Let me know if you enjoyed this review by following me on Twitter at Kybrarian or GeekBuddyMe on BGG at CatLibrary with a K. And until next episode, may all your gaming be joyful. Come with me, dear listener, as we journey to the Kingdom of Palm, where we'll seek to become the champion of the Harvest Tournament that takes place in the shadows of Castle Everfree. Designed by Hobie Chow and his daughter Vienna, illustrated by Katie Cow, with miniatures sculpted by Marchand Atelier, and released by Stonemeyer Games in 2018, my Little Scythe is a family game inspired by the unlikely mashup of My Little Pony and Stonemeyer's previous tabletop hit, Scythe. To win the Harvest Tournament, your pair of animals, also known as Seekers, must be the first to earn four trophies. Each player has their own player board that allows them to perform one action per turn, move, seek, or make. Actions cannot be repeated on consecutive turns. You move both of your Seekers to gather resources, complete quests, and start pie fights. You seek to add apples, gems, and quests to the board by rolling the appropriate dice. And you make to turn apples and gems into pies, magic spell cards, or power-ups. As you perform these actions, you'll eventually earn one of eight trophies. You can earn trophies by raising your friendship to level eight, making both power-ups, collecting three magic spell cards, or completing two quests. You can also deliver four gems or four apples to the castle, raise your pie level to 8, or win one pie fight to earn a trophy. The first to four trophies triggers the end of the game, 
If there's a tie, then the player with the highest level of friendship wins. If it's still tied, then whoever has the most gems and apples wins. Confession. I'm a Stonemaier Games fanboy. I love every game they've published, and I was surprised when I heard they were doing My Little Scythe. Sure, this was inspired by their most popular game, and the story of Hobie and his daughter originally making this as a print-and-play was endearing. But at first glance, this looked like a kid's game. Why did Stonemaier decide to publish this, and why would gamers older than, say, 8 years old play this thing? I'm happy to report that My Little Scythe is a wonderful family game, a gateway or even a Gateway Plus title, that has a lot to offer to gamers of all ages. The gameplay is smooth and intuitive. New players quickly learn how to play, while veteran Scythe players will appreciate My Little Scythe's riffs on its source material. You do one of three actions on your turn. If you meet the requirements of any of the eight trophies, then you place your trophy token. The requirements of each trophy are easy to understand. The trick is figuring out which one you want to focus on. My favorite is the friendship goal. By performing the seek action, which is rolling dice and placing gems, apples, and quests on the different hexes of the board, you can increase your friendship level. If you place a resource in a hex occupied by an opponent, your friendship level increases. Talk about a perfect marriage of theme and mechanism. You're rewarded for being friendly by helping your opponent gain resources. During my games with my elementary school age niece, she loved earning the pie goal by making pies which is simply collecting apples on the board and taking the make action. You return your apples to the supply and move your pie level up accordingly. To earn trophies more easily, each player begins the game with a secret personality card. For example, if I had the foodie personality, then I'd only need 7 instead of 8 pies to earn the trophy. The only conflict in the game is in the pie fights, which are more adorable than mean. Whoever enters an opponent's hex is the instigator, thus losing a friendship point. Players use their pie fight dials to set the number of pies they'll throw in the fight, based on their pie level. They may add magic spell cards to increase their pies thrown. They reveal simultaneously, and the player with the most pies wins. The winner remains in the hex while the loser returns to their home base, where they receive either one magic spell card or two pies. They also get to reset their actions, thus allowing them to perform any action on their next turn. My niece didn't want to start a pie fight with her uncle Ruel, and that was fine. She opted to earn the other trophies, like completing two quests, which offer multiple options for exchanging resources for rewards. She also earned another trophy by getting her power-ups through the make action. This allowed her to upgrade her move and make actions for future turns. As with their previous releases, Stonemaier sets the standard for high-quality board game components and artwork. From its huge, beautiful board and solid little apple and gem tokens, to its detailed animal miniatures, my Little Scythe is a top-notch production. Everything is solid and will stand up to repeated plays over the years. The two-piece insert from Game Trays was an unexpected and welcome addition. They spared no expense, and with an MSRP of $50, you're getting your money's worth and then some. And like other Stonemeyer titles, there's a solo game already built in, once again using Morton Monrad Peterson's Automa card system. I was surprised by how much I loved My Little Scythe. I'm not a My Little Pony fan, and only recently learned what a brony was, and an entry-level scythe game sounded decent, if not awe-inspiring. But My Little Scythe hits on many things that I enjoy in my favorite gateway-style games. Quick and easy to teach and learn, intuitive gameplay, simple actions that provide a deeper gaming experience, multiple paths to victory, and a gorgeous and functional game board and components that make non-gamers take a second look before asking, what game is that, and can I play? In My Little Scythe, Stonemaier has another winner in its growing and impressive catalog of games. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. 
Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to talk about The Draw by Todd Sanders, currently published by Board Game Geek Store and illustrated by Harry Clark. It's a solo game with an estimated 20-minute duration. I picked this up a couple of months ago when I saw it on the BGG store email, I believe, and before even knowing anything about the game or who the designer was, I thought it looked pretty cool. I had never even ventured onto the BGG store before, and for some reason it never occurred to me to consider it. The draw was actually published in 2014 and it's been around the PMP circuit for some time. Since I don't have access to a printer and like receiving mail, I decided to go for it. I have been playing mostly solo games this year and I like the sound of the theme and mechanics. It's a card game, era influence with a horror theme and having never played a Todd Sanders game before but knowing that Mason is a fan, I have pretty high hopes. In the draw, you must slay four of the undead before they corrupt all the townsfolk or a total of seven townsfolk and locations are corrupted. Before I go any further, I'll give you a brief summary of what the draw actually are, and this is based on a quick lookup. Well, they are creatures from Norse mythology and they're basically reanimated corpses who come back to wreak havoc upon the living and really like sleeping in their graves and holding the treasure they amassed with greed when alive. They usually take on a black-eyed, ghoulish appearance and can increase their body mass and shapeshift and can also infect those they kill and turn them into draw. So they're kind of like more badass, vengeful ghosts, but they can be killed for a second time around and that's what we're trying to achieve in the game. Now I've seen the artwork, I can totally understand why there's like an evil gorilla type creature called Gargantua and why some have robes and jewels and are depicted looking pretty damn weird. So in the game we have three rows of five cars which represent our townsfolk and locations and two draw characters per row each side. Each turn you randomly pick a token from your pile and that's the corrupting draw that turn so you're looking for the row that character is adjacent to. You then pull a second token and you're looking at the symbols. Whatever symbol is on your token you're placing corruption on any cards on that draw's row with that symbol. If any card receives four corruption it is corrupted and must be flipped. You have up to two movement actions per turn and you cannot move horizontally. When you have made your final movement you can use that card's ability and these allow you to remove corruption, accumulate holy water and iron resources and place those resources on draw. Once the draw receives the required amount of resources they can be slain but any draw below or beneath them is shifted up or down to inhabit both rows and that's pretty much how you play the game. I have to say that I've had a really good time with this because whilst being a fairly short duration and I've played between 10 and 30 minute games, it manages to deliver on my solo gaming desires and has me appreciating the uncomplicated but hella clever game design. I have a great admiration for games which don't have a great deal to them in terms of components and mechanics but are completely engaging. Only having two moves means that you have to be very careful when considering them. Using abilities at the right time whilst balancing the accumulation of resources and minimising the corruption of the cards makes some difficult decision and strategy. So whilst it's a game you can chill with somewhat, it's also intense because winning the game solely depends on what you do with your two movement actions. You'll find that as cards become corrupted you have less chance of corruption tokens being placed in that row, which mid-game comes in quite useful. But if you let the corruption get out of hand, you'll find yourself losing very quickly. I really like the pacing of the game and how thematic it is. If the evil undead were spreading their decay at an alarming rate, infecting tons folk, they kill, slaughtering ad hoc and generally creating havoc around the town, it probably would escalate rather quickly, especially if only one brave soul to slay them before it's too late. This is wonderfully represented in the game because once it gets going, it's a race against time to win before everybody's corrupted and it's really challenging to get enough resources to do the job, but it's wonderfully satisfying when you do kill a draft for those resources to go back on your player supply. 
There's a lot of risk management here. I did find myself running into difficulty in my earlier games when I wasn't being careful enough as to what draw I was slaying and what cards I was neglecting allowing to be corrupted because some are essential in getting the resources you need to make headway. The card abilities are really cool. Whilst there's not a huge range, they can be used really smartly if you're thinking about where you're going and what you're doing next. I did find that in my longer games it become a little tedious when establishing the draw and the corrupted for the turn, and I didn't really mind because my turns felt meaningful. But it depends on what you're looking for and what kind of gamer you are. If the thought of repeating similar patterns over a period of time fills you with dread, this might not be your thing. But it is a micro game, and whilst turns can become repetitive if it runs longer, it really is a very decent area influence and strategy game at a small scale and a low price point. There are expansion cards which I'm still to use. I'd really like to see more characters and abilities added further. I personally love the look and feel of the game. The artwork is very cool. It captures the supernatural without being all out horror and a couple of characters that truly hideous but it's subtle. The only small issue I did have was on the tokens as they're very small versions of the artwork and being quite dark. Coupled with my not so great eyesight, it took me a little while to figure out what was what. It was kind of like staring at an optical illusion, and then of course once I saw it, I could every other time. At a very reasonable price point in shipping and quick delivery from BGG store, I would recommend this to anyone who is after an intense solo game and who likes horror themes. If you want to see more videos, you can visit my YouTube channel, Shiny Have Meeples, or read my blog at shinyhavemeeplesco.com. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Kerala. I love a good abstract, but many of them are only two-player. Most of the time, that's great for us, as we are, of course, primarily a two-player household. But we also run a monthly game night for lighter titles, so I'm always looking for a good, relatively simple abstract that plays up to five. I hadn't heard anything about Kerala before I saw it sitting on the shelf at BoardGameGeekCon last year. It wasn't a game that had really gotten any press, and I hadn't seen anyone talking about it, though it had been released at Essen the previous fall. Designer Kirsten Heiss has done more than a dozen kids' games for Haba, Ravensburger, and others, including Cosmos, the publisher of Kerala. Kerala is a tile-drafting and placement game with delightful artwork ostensibly about elephant festivals in southern India. I'll return to the theme later, but let's talk about the game first, as this is really just a total abstract. In Kerala, you're building out your fairground made of square-colored tiles. You draft these tiles out of a bag and add them to your park on the table. Unlike some other tile lane games such as Lanterns or Carcassonne, each player is only working on their own park. There's no player interaction other than the draft, which I, of course, quite like. Kerala uses a variation of what's a pretty standard placement convention in other abstract games, which is each new piece you place must touch the last piece you placed. When I play a new tile next to my wooden elephant, I move the wooden elephant onto the new tile. Now you actually start with two wooden elephants, so you always have at least two different placement options which is really eight different placement options because they can all be placed orthogonally, but I don't want to get into a rules explanation. Feel free to read the rules online. You get points by connecting the four different colors of tiles into big blocks of color. So all the reds are together, all the blues, all the greens, etc. A lot of the tiles have elephant icons as well, which you add up to get points at the end of the game. Crawler is not a complex game, and I can easily teach it by playing out a sample turn. So the grit, the crunch, and the frustration all come from the intersection of drafting tiles and then trying to decide where they're going to go. You're only pulling as many tiles as there are players, so the person who picks last is just going to get what they get. So the two-player game, which is the bulk of my 20-plus plays of Kerala, is highly tactical. I'd say about 50% of the time you're getting stuck with an essentially random tile and forced to place it. At 4 and 5 players, Kerala has much looser drafting, and in some ways the emergence makes it feel like a totally different game, which I enjoy equally. Like many of my favorite games, Kerala can be played hyper-competitively, 
with shrewd tile placement and hate drafting, or played totally casually with little concern for what your opponent is doing. The game is still great even if you have a player who drafts their title totally at random, though that person probably won't actually win. Family weight abstracts, I think, are a tricky space. They can't be too complex or they'll overshoot their target demographic. Crawl has about three, three and a half pages of rules in fairly large type with lots of examples. I think it's easier to learn than, say, Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne, but with just as much replayability. There's a clear objective, uh, a damn good score sheet, and it manages to feel competitive without feeling combative. I love the GIF series of games, and we'll probably cover them eventually, but they're largely zero-sum affairs. I won because you lost, which, I don't know, for me maybe isn't the best foot forward for modern games when introducing them to new players. Corolla is a great title to introduce new players because it's clear, straightforward, and attractive, but still engaging in good tactical fun for more serious or seasoned players. There are five different colors of tiles, and at the end of the game you can have two sections of your own color, but only one section of the other four colors. Any extra tiles count against you. They are bad, you do not want that to happen. You're also rewarded for having all five colors, which discourages players from hoarding a single color. It's a great length, clocking in around 20 minutes for a two-player game and maybe about 35 for the five-player game. There are 100 tiles in the bag, that's 20 of each color, and you take out 20 in the two-player setup. That's a really slick way to scale the game across multiple player accounts and have it work without some silly, oh, in two-player you play two hands nonsense, which I hate. Though players get double the number of tiles in the two-player game as in the five-player game, it doesn't feel any longer or shorter to me. So as much as I love Corral, I do have a couple of pretty serious knocks against it. The first, and the most trivial, being that the box is once again, and I realize I'm on this every week, too damn big. This is the standard 12-inch Cosmos Ticket to Ride box, and there is absolutely no reason for it to be that size other than the fact that it is the standard Cosmos box. That's a lot of air to store on your shelf, and it annoys me. Now the second more significant knock is that Kerala is in no way colorblind friendly. The tile colors are red, purple, green, blue, and black. If you have certain color vision problems, you will probably have to mark the tiles to tell the red from the purple or the blue from the green dependent on your vision. But the most serious issue I have with Kerala is the cultural appropriation of the theme. Did a little bit of digging, and to the best of my knowledge, no one of South Asian descent had anything to do with the production of the game. There's nothing else directly problematic about Kerala, other than the fact that Indian elephants are a core cultural and religious part of life in the state of Kerala, which of course comes with a deeply complex set of its own baggage. If you're not familiar with the millennia of issues surrounding human interaction with, reverence toward, and the exploitation of Indian elephants, I would encourage you to learn more from organizations like the World Wildlife Fund or the International Elephant Foundation. To learn more about Southern India itself, check out KeralaCulture.org, which is the website for the Kerala State Directorate of Culture. So, who should buy Kerala? People who love light abstracts, people who love short games, people who love drafting, people who love tile placement, and people who love moving wooden elephants around on a table. I give Kerala 5 out of 5 colored tiles that could have been about literally anything on Earth, but just happened to be about Indian elephant fairs. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at discount compost. Thank you for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by games like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by games or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play or follow all the links on 5 bygamescom The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.